Hi guys, welcome back to Unfiltered for episode two of the new podcast. I'm really genuinely excited to not only bring you today's episode, but more importantly, to introduce you to our guest for today, somebody who is so inspirational, who is doing the most incredible work within the eating disorder space in Australia and in New Zealand, where she is originally from. Today, we're going to be talking to Millie Thomas, who is a fully recovered recovery coach and advocate within the eating disorder space. Part of my reason for wanting to bring the podcast back was because I am constantly being introduced to or finding people doing extraordinary stuff, particularly within the recovery, eating disorder, body image spaces, and Millie is certainly one of those people. Millie suffered from an eating disorder herself for many years, which you'll hear about in this episode. I don't think it really warrants a trigger warning. We are as responsible as we can be. There's no mention of numbers or anything like that. So this is a pretty safe episode to listen to in regards to somebody's experience. We talk about Millie's experience with treatment, both good and bad, and all of her reasons for why she herself wanted to become a recovery coach. And most importantly, in this episode, we talk about the concept of full recovery, how important it is to see people speaking from a lived experience about the fact that it is absolutely possible to heal your eating disorder and live a full and fabulous and limitless life, which Millie is certainly doing. On top of her work as a recovery coach, she has also been very closely involved with the End Ed Butterfly House treatment facility, which is the first inpatient residential facility in Australia, which will be opening, I believe it's next April. This is an enormous bit of progress for treatment of eating disorders in Australia. In the lead up to our chat, Millie had a quite an extraordinary week attending the groundbreaking of the new facility alongside Health Minister Greg Hunt, who also used Millie's lived experience as an example when he made his address at quite a well-known eating disorder conference in Australia. So massive week with huge progress. And I was so honored that she took the time to come and have a chat to us about all things eating disorders, recovery, full recovery, and her own extraordinary contribution to the eating disorder space. I hope you guys really enjoy our chat and get something out of it. Make sure to come and follow the podcast over on SoundCloud and Spotify. It will be up on iTunes sometime this week. Keep an eye on my stories on Instagram, what Mia did next to find out when it will be available on iTunes. As always, let me know what you think of the episode and you can always drop me an email at unfilteredwithmia at gmail.com. So Millie, thank you so much for coming and joining me today and staying up on a Saturday night uh, to have a chat to me. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, Very, very excited to have you here, given the week that you've just had, particularly with the incredible news about the Ended Butterfly House and the groundbreaking with Health Minister Greg Hunt. Do you want to start off telling us a little bit about the week that you've just had and particularly that day? Absolutely. Uh, Look, we've been working for the last four years uh, as an organisation towards building Australia's first residential eating disorders facility right here on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, So it's been quite a long journey and we've had to definitely uh, bash down quite a few doors and and not take no for an answer to get to the point where we are at right now, which is uh, we've broken ground and we will begin construction uh, in a few weeks time. So it's incredibly, incredibly exciting. And I really do feel like it is a shift in the paradigm um, for eating disorder treatment in Australia. It's, it's a new chapter and it's very, very, very much needed. Um, so we could not be more excited. And we're just so, so grateful to Uh, Minister Hunt for his support. It's been absolutely invaluable. And also our federal member for Fisher, Andrew Wallace, has been just integral in in opening those doors down there in Canberra for us to to really sort of make our case for for what we wanted to do um, in Mooloola Valley. Mm -hmm. And as I was saying to you just before we sort of started recording, you know, I I can be quite cynical about politicians' stance on, on mental health 
uh, issues, they tend to sort of come and go. But Minister Hunt has been incredibly consistent with his uh, dedication to this course. He also, in his address, used your lived experience as an example of why this is such a crucial thing for us to be tackling. Talk to me about what that was like to sort of hear your story being used as an example for such an incredibly important bit of progress in eating disorder treatment. Absolutely. Look, firstly, want to reiterate, I feel exactly the same. I feel that um, Minister Hunt is incredibly consistent. He really, really knows his stuff and he really is, he genuinely cares and wants to understand and wants to make a difference. And I actually said that to him on the day of the groundbreaking. I said, that's not just lip service and I can't thank you enough for that. Um, it was, I wasn't actually at that conference. I had, um, people texting me saying this is happening and it was, it was, it did bring tears to my eyes to be quite honest with you, because I have always felt that I, that I fought so hard and so long uh, with my eating disorder for a reason. And, you know, I did feel that that reason was that I could use my lived experience to, to create change and you know, working with Ended has enabled me to do that and really leverage that lived experience to um, to drive change. And so, you know, Mark and Gay, who I work with in Ended, have really, they've come from a parents and carers lived experience with their two daughters with bulimia, and I've been able to come from a sufferer's lived experience, um, both with that same common common dream vision of, of developing the residential. And so to, to see it being spoken about um, on such a, I guess, big platform and to be really recognised as driving um, change on a national level um, was really, really special. I completely agree with you. I think that lived experience in the last few years has been such a key part of why eating disorders are so much more visible. What is it about sharing your experience? What impact have you seen that have in terms of how people relate to you or, or other people going through a similar experience? How do you feel like that makes a difference when you're so open with what you've been through? For people who haven't um, possibly addressed their, their eating disorder issues or have been wary about coming forward. I think seeing someone be so open and so genuine about their experience really helps them to feel that they uh, can come forward um, and that it's safe to do so and also that it's not something to be ashamed of. I think there is still so much uh, stigma and so many myths surrounding eating disorders and I think the way to overcome that um, by and large is to actually start talking and the more that we talk the less that eating disorders will be swept under the carpet and the more that we bring them into the light um, the less that they sort of thrive in that darkness. And I really, really feel that if we can, uh, as an eating disorder community, talk about our experiences, it makes them, it makes it feel, well, people feel less lonely, mm. but they also feel less, I mean, I think there's a lot, uh, there's a feeling of, of shame. And I think when we start talking about it and we don't exhibit any shame, um, then other people can, can see that they could maybe do that as well. Mm -hmm. and, and also I talk to my clients a lot about there being such a big power in being vulnerable and putting yourself out there and that can actually be really empowering. Um, and so, yeah, so I think it's, it's something that we need to do more of and I really hope that in this next chapter there will be more of that lived experience coming through I definitely definitely felt that uh recently in Adelaide at the Australian New Zealand Eating Disorders Conference there was a lot more lived experience coming through and um, I hope to see that also at the uh at ICED at the International uh, Eating Disorders Conference at Sydney next year um more lived experience more people speaking up and showing how it can be used in a clinical context mm -hmm. yeah I think that's always such an interesting uh, observation is that vulnerability piece that when you, you show people that vulnerability is actually strength, it kind of twists uh, the eating disorder beliefs on its head that, you know, being vulnerable is being weak is, you know, something to be avoided where when you are vulnerable and you're able to connect, you're strengthening that connection and your capacity to seek help and to relate to people. And the less alone you feel, the less isolated you feel, the more equipped you are to actually beat this thing. So do you want to give us a little bit of background about 
sort of your experience with your eating disorder and a little bit about your recovery as well and how you kind of got to this point? Absolutely. So I first uh, was diagnosed with anorexia when I was 12. So I had just started at an all-girls private school. And when I started there, you know, prior to this, I had had no qualms about food or body image. And I started at the school and I just felt the need to fit in. Um, I felt pressure. And my immediate thought was that if I lost some weight, I was by no means um, overweight, but I just thought in my head that if I lost some weight, then maybe I'd fit in more. And that set the scene for my eating disorder. I, I was very obviously um, already predisposed with my personality personality characteristics. So OCD, type A, high achiever, uh, perfectionist. And so what we know is mean the genes load the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. So I was absolutely um they didn't really have a chance because that environment really did pull the trigger for me mm-hmm. and i it started off quite slowly i decided that i was going to make my own lunches and then of course i wasn't making my own lunches to take to school and um things just escalated and i was taken out of school and the you know prescribed course of treatment at that time was to, to refeed me and then i was put back into school mm-hmm. now what was any of the underlying psychological issues Mm -hmm. uh, that you know were manifesting my eating disorder so I was put back into school and I seemed to from all intents and purposes to everybody else to be fine and I wasn't fine I wasn't fine at all Um, I still had all the thoughts and I was existing but I wasn't living so probably now in a body that you were more uncomfortable in that's that's something that i see all the time is this refeeding approach without actually addressing what's contributed to the eating disorders surface appearance is that none of that's addressed and then you put somebody in a body that they completely reject and feel totally alien in but everyone's treating them like they're absolutely fine such a common experience Absolutely. And it is, it's really, really difficult, especially when you're struggling with, with having a body that is, is different to what, what you would like. Mm. Um, so for those years, say from year nine to, to, to year 13, I, I existed. So I didn't live, I didn't go through any of the, the usual teenage rites of passage. I didn't get drunk. I didn't um, experiment with things. I didn't have relationships. Mm-hmm. I you know, would rarely go out to, to drinks or parties for fear of um, you know, the calorie consumption um, or being pressured to have something. Uh, and so I, I missed out on all of that, that real growth stuff where you learn about yourself. And I sort of maintained, um, you know, riding a very fine line with my weight for those years. And then I got to year 13 and I was uh, nominated to represent New Zealand at the Global Young Leaders Conference in uh, Washington, DC. And I went, that was my first big overseas trip away without my parents. And I went away and I lost a significant amount of weight. And when I got back, I never really regained that. That weight became my new normal. And so I got a scholarship to university and I went headlong into doing my business degree and ensconced myself in that. And because I was an adult, no one could really force me to to have to get treatment. Um, You know, I was medically stable. I was existing. And I had sort of, I think, convinced myself that it was okay and I could live like this. I was very aware that there were parts of my life that um, weren't as full as they could be because of my restrictions around food and um, my obsession with exercise. But I sort of resigned myself to the fact that I could I could live like this. Um, I then went into quite a stressful job. Um, and, and in this time period, I was being seen as an outpatient at, um, at, at an eating disorder service in Auckland. And so yeah, I am from Auckland. I forgot to, I forgot to add, <laughs> um, in, in New Zealand. Yeah. And basically it got to a point where my team said that I was too chronic and that, you know, there wasn't any hope and that, you know, palliative care was palliative care was the only option mm-hmm. and I think you know, 
uh, yeah, and, and the thing is, you know, up until that point, look, it had been really, really tough, really hard, and but there was a part of me that was holding on to this hope because it was like, no, I think I can do it. And I was, I was trying. I wasn't getting anywhere, but I was trying. And then when you had the supposed experts take that hope away, it really did send me on quite um, a decline. I mean, I was, I was very unwell, but then I, I got further unwell. And I was also in a stressful, quite a stressful job at the time. And that just, yeah, it, things spiraled. And I obviously, after my treatment team had had said that to me, I, I no longer wanted to, to work with them. And so I was really only occasionally checking in with my, my local GP. And I remember going into there one day and I hadn't been in there for a while. And he just, you know, took one look at me and he said, you know, like, you've only got weeks to live and you need to make that decision whether you you want to live or you want to die and I think it's really important to clarify at this point I'd never been suicidal I'd never been depressed uh however I had been battling anorexia at this point for almost 15 years and the sheer exhaustion and pain mentally and physically was becoming too much to bear it was my every waking minute consumed with calories, with exercise, with body image. And even at night, I wasn't really sleeping that much. And even if I was sleeping, the dreams would be about that. And then for the moment, I did wake up. And it was just this constant, constant, relentless battle. And I was really battle-weary. I, I felt like I couldn't go on and existing like I was. And I really did feel that, you know, all sort of avenues of treatment had been exhausted. And I made the decision at that point that I would rather die. I just couldn't see myself ever being at peace other than being up in the clouds, looking down on the world from afar and just being at peace. And my mum uh, when I went home and told her that, she sort of was obviously struggling to come to terms with that. And she said to me, will you come to Noosa with me um, on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, uh, Australia? And that had always been a place where I had been most at peace. Um, I'd never, it had never really meant that I ate more, but I was always sort of happier when I was over there. And so I agreed to to go with her and unbeknown to me, she had set up an appointment with a, an amazing therapist who specializes in NLP, so neuro-linguistic programming and hypnotherapy. And so I didn't think it was going to work at all, but I really went for mum's sake. I thought, oh, you know what, I'll, I'll give it a go. And I, I went to the first appointment and I sat there and I didn't think about anything other than food and exercise related things. And I walked out of the appointment and I said to mum, well, that was a waste of time because I didn't listen to anything that she said because I couldn't because my voices were too loud. And she said, well, look, would you just give it one more go? You know, go in there and next time and tell her about that and so I did I went in there and I said look it's not you it's me I'm just too far gone and she said why do you think that and I said well all I was thinking about in the session and I started to reel off a couple of the thoughts and then she stepped in and told me all of these thoughts that she and she could actually read my mind in terms of what was going on in, in my conscious mind and it was at that point where she explained to me that she was working on my subconscious and that she had to let my conscious mind run otherwise then she would not be able to work on my subconscious because my eating disorder would come in and interrupt that. Mm. And I sat there and I thought, I have to give this a go. This could actually work. This is really different. And one of the other things that she said to me is, you know, she wasn't phased by how long I'd had my illness, how severe it was. She just said, but you can change your brain. And no one had ever said that to me. They'd always said, you'll have this for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. It'll be something you'll have to manage. And she point blank said, well, no, you can change your brain. You have to want to and you have to commit, but you can. And so from that moment on, I decided to take a big leap of faith. And I basically made this decision where I was like, well, I don't want to die what it's, without knowing what it's like to truly live. 
and I really dived in and it was the most confronting, excruciatingly difficult uh, process of my life. It really forced me to come face to face with these beliefs and values that I didn't even realize that my eating disorder had placed inside of me, which were literally, um, you know, keeping the eating disorder alive and well. And, you know, some of these things were, um, I was going to recover, but it was with conditions, this whole, I'll recover, but I'm only going to, you know, I'm only going to do it if I can look like this. Oh yeah. The eating disorder is the number one negotiator. Like, oh, I'll yes. give you, I'll give you 60% of your life, but I've got to occupy this 40%. And then it gets down to 30% and 20% and it'll, it'll whittle it all the way down to 0.111%. If it can just hold on to that little bit, it'll do everything in its power to negotiate it down. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think for me, I was firmly convinced that I could recover and look a certain way and know exactly how it was going to be and be in total control. And so there were many times when I was being confronted on these beliefs where I just stormed out of the room and shut the door and swore that I was never going back. But then two days later would be sitting on the beach and think about the fact that that is the exact belief that I've held on to for the last 15 years and look where I am. And so really, yeah, working on a lot of things like that to, to allow me to really get back the values that I had pre-eating disorder, Millie's values rather than my eating disorder's values. And so just really change my entire value system and create this new mindset and this new life. Um, and by no means was it easy. As I said, it was really, really difficult. Um, but it was worth every bit of, of, you know, blood, sweat and tears. Absolutely. Because it allowed me to develop an absolutely new relationship with my body, my body, mind and soul was back in balance. And I was able to lead a full life, uh, with, without my eating disorder, um, but it did require, and I think it's really important to clarify, it did require me taking that leap of faith, uh, really signing myself over and saying, you know, I, I said to myself, like, this is it. This is your one final shot at life. You need to give it everything that you've got um, because otherwise you're not going to have a life. And so we completed six months of that treatment. And, um, I went back to New Zealand at the end of those six months, a completely different person, um, body, mind, and soul. And I went back to, to New Zealand and back into this environment where I'd grown up in and, um, the social scene that I was in, it just, it wasn't sitting right with me. Um, and I felt the need to just remove myself again and, and really discover, okay, now that I'm well, what is it that I want to do with my one wild and precious life that I have. And so I went to the States uh, for a little while and spent some time over there just really living um, and deciding what it, what it was that I wanted to do. And there was a sort of pivotal moment where I was sitting in a park and I was journaling and I heard a mother say to a, a little girl on a swing, she would have been about five or six, um, you're getting too fat. I won't be able to swing you anymore. You know, so soon. And I just had this visceral reaction to it. And nowadays I would actually go up and I would approach the parent and, and mm -hmm. speak. To them. Uh, but in those days it was, I was sort of like just shocked and, and sitting there going, oh my goodness, does she not know what this could possibly, you know, the, the, the course of events that that one comment could set off. Mm -hmm. And later that night, I, people have been saying to me, you need to write about your experiences. But I was very aware that there is so much eating disorder recovery content out there and books and things like that. And I didn't really feel like I had anything unique to bring to the table at this point. But that night I felt so strongly about writing. And so I wrote a big thing about my experience and popped it up on my Facebook. And people just it resonated with so many people and then Huffington Post wanted to publish it. And, and at that point I realized that I did have something special. I did have something that resonated with people and that could potentially 
change lives. And so I decided that I was going to move to my happy place, the Sunshine Coast, and I had this dream of starting an eating disorders charity. Um, and so in a very big whirlwind, I gave myself 24 hours to get back to Auckland, pack up my life, move to the Sunshine Coast. And um, I got there and I didn't really know anyone. I didn't know how this was going to happen. But um, as fate would have it, I got introduced through a mutual friend to an incredible couple, Mark and Gay Forbes, who had uh, begun this organization called Dead, and they had begun parents and carers support groups as they had, themselves had a lived experience with having two daughters with bulimia. And I decided to join forces with them in terms of helping uh, from a sufferer's lived experience perspective. And so that was four years ago. And then, and we also had that common vision of establishing um, Australia's first residential eating disorders facility. And so bit by bit, that has just grown exponentially. And so now I, um, I'm working with them as an eating disorder recovery coach. Um, in the residential um, project, and I'm also a big advocate for, for neuroscience and the role that it has to play in eating disorder recovery, obviously, because it was such a pivotal part of mine. And so, actually, I'm going to become a certified NLP practitioner uh, in October. So, I'm really excited about that because I know, um, you know, with my recovery coaching, that it will be a fantastic sort of adjunct. So that's reminded me that I've skipped a part. I trained <laughs> under Carolyn Costin yep. uh, to become a certified recovery recovery coach. Mm -hmm. And so I'd started organically sort of coaching people and giving people support. Um, and then I decided that my business degree was all well and good, but I really wanted to have a certification behind me um, that was specifically for eating disorders. And I didn't want to go back to university and and do psychology degree when the amount of eating disorder content in that would be incredibly minimal mm. um instead and probably pretty archaic every time i've asked yes. anyone do you think it would be advisable to go back into a psychology degree even friends of mine who are so pro university so pro having a degree say absolutely not you would tear your hair out with how outdated so much of that those treatment approaches are and how much of that belief system is just so tied to old archaic beliefs and they're absolutely right with the amount of stuff that I hear from clients and people out uh, who I speak to who are going through a treatment experience who have had yeah a fairly outdated there's no such thing as full recovery uh, approach is pretty scary it's pretty common Oh, absolutely. And I think that's why I'm just so thankful to Carolyn for, for setting up the Carolyn Costin Institute because, um, I mean, she's she's inc an incredible powerhouse of knowledge when it comes to that lived experience. And she really was the first person to champion that and employ lived experience therapists. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but my way of, to my way of thinking, if you're going to train under someone, you'd want to train under her. So, yes, agreed. Uh, so, yeah, so I did that, recovery coaching, and that sort of brings us to where we are today. Current day. So... I have to ask you though, given I completely understand now your incredible work and your motivation to have such a huge influence on this residential facility and treatment of eating disorders in Australia, because how do you feel now about the approach of your treatment team, this whole, there's no such, no such thing as full recovery. And then, as you said, taking away that hope of recovery at all and recommending palliative care, I'm just stunned by that. How do you kind of feel given not only how far you've come in your own recovery, but how you help other people to recover. What are your thoughts on that now? Look, it's something that I, I try not to be bitter about anything because I think it's a waste of time and energy. Mm -hmm. It is definitely something that deeply upsets me. And I guess why it, it still to this day deeply upsets me is because even as Three days ago, I had an email from somebody in Dunedin Hospital who had been told the same thing. Basically, go home. Basically, she was. She said, I felt like I was being sent home to die mm. because they said there was nothing that they could do. And I am at the tagline of ended is there is hope because I, I do believe that there is always hope and I do believe that full recovery is possible no matter how hard or how long your journey with an eating disorder has been. And I think that it's, 
it's just wrong on so many levels for anybody to take that hope away from an individual or from a parent or carer. I think sometimes hope is all you've got and it's what pulls you through. You know, that hope and that love is what can pull you through. Even when you don't believe that you can get well yourself, having the hope of somebody else pulling you through. I know there were many moments where I doubted my ability and my mum always held that hope for me. And that was that was absolutely integral to my ability to be able to keep going. I also think that, well, I'm really in disbelief, I guess, that there is still this system of refeeding people without psychological support and then then putting them out into the community and expecting them to be okay with that. And I think, you know, I look at it like this is the same course of treatment that was prescribed when I was 12 and it didn't work then and it still doesn't work now, yet we continue to do it. And I think that that's just... I understand that eating disorders are complicated and I understand that sometimes treatment can be um, an incredibly sort of moving, shifting beast in terms of the fact that the eating disorder is constantly morphing and changing. Therefore, treatment has to um, basically take take that into consideration. Um, but I don't think, you know, if, if, for example, someone had a really complicated form of cancer, then people would rally around trying to find out, okay, well, how, how can we attack this differently? You know, it seems to be manifesting in this way. What can we do? How can we? And for some reason, we're eating disorders are concerned, and I don't know whether it's because of the still the myths and stigma surrounding it in terms of it being a choice or somebody that somebody can just eat if they made the decision to. There needs to be a change because mm. what we are doing in the public mental health system and also in the private mental health system for that fact isn't working and people are going in and out of these facilities for years on end and you know often highly medicated and nobody is helping them to deal with the underlying issues and I think there is I will say a level of complacency amongst clinicians in terms of the fact that while we're being allowed to do this, you know, nobody's challenging it. I I agree. I completely agree. I've heard, I mean, I am often infuriated by what I hear, not just an advocate, but now specifically as a coach, because obviously you're so invested in a one-on-one sense in somebody's journey. Mm -hmm. I've heard infuriating stuff like a client who, when they came out of an inpatient setting, they were asked if they would like to book back in just in case. And she had made extraordinary, extraordinary progress, was at a really great place in terms of her level of hope and motivation and commitment and was asked, you know, just in case, because we see so often people coming back in, well, it's that very attitude which puts a level of doubt in, which makes them believe they will just be stuck in that revolving door forever. And part of that is likely owing to the dismissal of lived experiences like ours and people like you know, that's Carolyn Coston, who is a absolute giant in this field, who are saying full recovery is possible. And I truly believe part of it is the dismissal of the possibility of full recovery, that that's maybe where that complacency comes from. Well, we keep seeing people come in and out and in and out. So that's now our standard, as opposed to sort of raising the bar to our goal should be to get people to full recovery, not just well enough that they can kind of exist until they fall in a heap again and come back through the doors. I completely agree with you. And um, yeah, my experience is very similar with, with my clients and, you know, being told that they are allowed to take leave when conveniently the psychiatrist goes on holiday mm-hmm. and they will come back when the psychiatrist comes back from their holiday. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of these things that go around that just spin your head around. And ultimately I do believe that sadly it comes back to the profits it's being driven by profit. It's, it's, it's money driven. Mm. And I think until you come from a place of absolute passion and dedication to being invested in a client's recovery, it, it, it's not going to work. You know, you've got to be invested in, in that client getting well. 
absolutely 100%, even when it's incredibly complicated and even when the eating disorder is digging its toes in, you have to be there as that absolute consistent support who believes that they can get well and who is willing to support them through this process, no matter how hard it's going to be, no matter how long the recovery journey might be. They need to know that you're going to be there by their side and that you believe that they can get well. Mm. And I think that that is possibly one of the the real advantages of lived experience is that you ha- almost innately have that within you to, in order because you know yourself what that would have meant for you in your recovery and you also know that it's not just as simple as making the decision to get well that you need absolute support every single step of the way you need someone consistently telling you to keep going and it's going to be worth it and I think when they've got somebody who they can see that is living breathing proof of having got out the other side that is absolutely invaluable. Um, I've had many clients say to me that that you know that that is what has kept them going because they can see that I have this amazing life now, and they know that I was in the same position and I struggled just as they've been struggling, and I, I made it so that that gives them that possibility of well maybe I can make it too, um, and I think that's one of the I don't know you probably find the same but it's one of those recovery coaching just gives you an incredible sense of, I don't even know what the word is. I don't even think I can articulate that sense that you get when you've been working with a client and they've been quite highly dependent on you and you've been helping them through. And then they just start to spread their wings and fly. And to see that happen just fills my heart and my soul. Mm. Um, And, you know, and that's why I do, I, 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 say to people all the time that I firmly believe that I'll be doing this for the rest of my life because when you see that you're creating change not only in individuals but also at a systemic level um yeah it's amazing and I love that you know I have so many clients who say I want to become a recovery coach once (laughs) once I'm recovered and that becomes when we look at their goals for why they want to recover and, and what their motivations are you know wanting to be recovered for the gold standard two years in order to be able to go and get certified which is obviously yeah. one of Carolyn's stipulations for going into her course that becomes one of the things that is at the top of their list which is it's so true this you know lived experience thing has more of a ripple effect than we realize because there is so much you can see it in the clients I receive emails from them saying you know I and when I recommend that they go and see a psychologist or a dietitian, they're like, but I only want to find one that has lived experience because that yes. is this immediate yeah. level of trust that is built and just no hesitation in terms of what they'll share with you and what they'll reveal to you. Because as I say to them, if you've thought it or done it, there's a really good chance I have too. So that shame and embarrassment is immediately taken out of the equation, which I remember, look, I loved my treatment team. I loved my psychologist. I owe them my life. But I, like you, was not ever told that full recovery was possible. I was told like an addiction that it would be something that I would be managing and keeping on top of for the rest of my life, which actually contributed to the closest thing to a relapse that I ever experienced because I was completely completely burnt out. I had nothing left. I was operating as if I was still in the beginning stages of recovery because I thought that's what it would take for the rest of my life and had probably already reached a point where I could have confidently called myself fully recovered if I'd known that was a space I could kind of step into. Um, But when you don't know that that location is on the map, you'll kind of settle for whatever comes before that. Uh, So when you learned that full recovery was possible after being told for so long that it wasn't and it made such a difference to how you were able to go forward. How do you see that making a difference to your clients in terms of telling them that full recovery is possible? How does that sort of shift how they approach their own recovery or what that makes possible for them, I suppose? I think for a lot of them, 
they've resigned themselves to the fact that they will always have to manage it for the rest of their lives because that is what they've been told. Um, not only by, by treating teams clinicians, but also, you know, I even had parents of, of friends of mine at school saying, well, you know, I had a friend who had an eating disorder and well, she just had to learn how to manage it. And so I think when you're being constantly told that it's really hard to believe that, um, that it's anything but that. And when I say to them that, no, you can fully recover and you can get this out of your life, there is this shift in terms of them sort of almost feeling like, wow, okay, so you mean that if I really commit and I, I jump in boots and all, that I could actually get rid of this for real? Um, rather than feeling like, okay, because I mean, it's almost like someone saying to you, okay, you've got cancer and you're going to have to work really, really hard and feel really, really sick doing chemotherapy. But to get to a point, you won't ever really get rid of it, but you'll get to a point where the chemotherapy feels a little bit better. Mm. It's like, it's really hard to commit to that and think, oh, great, you know, yeah, that's sort of what I want. But when you can actually go, well, no, you can have a life of freedom and you can have a healthy relationship with your body, you know, and you can have, um, you know, anything that you want in life, um, it, it opens sort of new doors of possibility for them mm-hmm to consider and to think about. And I think for some of them, it takes them a little while to sort of make that shift and go, okay, so I could actually have a life like this rather than, well, I'll always have to sort of be conscious and I won't ever be able to do that because, you know, possibly that might be triggering or, Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it's a really, it's really cool when you can see people's eyes light up and go, really? Mm. So you don't? you know, calorie count and you don't (laughs) like, nope. and I haven't for many years now. And, you know, so you don't weigh yourself. No, I haven't known what my weight is in over four years. Um, And then being able to talk to them from your own experience when they say, well, yeah, but how do you do that? And be able to talk about, okay, well, it was little by little, step by step that I dismantled my eating disorder. And, Mm you know, give them tools that they might not necessarily work for that person in that point of time, but it might help them to think about things in a different way, look at things from a different perspective. And um, yeah, I just think there's a great value in being able to to let them know that Mm. there is a big, full life out there waiting for them. Um, And it's just the balls in their court as to whether they take that leap of faith and really dive in. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I, I often explain it to clients as, you know, if you were walking in a new city and you had to get yourself a hotel room and you on, on your map, you could see that there was this sort of flea bag hotel that was, you know, cockroach ridden and you had to pay this extortionate amount of money to stay there. But you didn't know that a couple of blocks down the road that there was a hotel there that was a luxurious level of accommodation and that there was a room booked there for you that was all paid up, you'd probably keep walking. You probably wouldn't stay at the flea bag riddled hotel. You'd continue walking on to the next destination. But if nobody puts it on the map for you, you will actually settle and you will compromise and you will just sort of sit in what a lot of professionals are telling people, which is this sort of quasi recovery state as if that's the be all and end all. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And I often talk about that also in terms of, you know, with your neural pathways in the brain and, and explain it in terms of there's this eating disorder superhighway going on. You know, it's a freeway, bright lights, everything flows smoothly, you just jump on, it's easy, you know, the exit to get off, great. And then somewhere up in the hills, <laughs> far away from the freeway is this goat track that someone you know, has occasionally bushwhacked. Um, And the only way that you are going to create a more defined path up in that rocky trail is to continue to take that path. Mm. It's, you know, it's, it's not the easy path. It's not the fastest path, but it's, you know, that is your healthy self 
and your eating disorder self is going down here on the super highway. And in order to strengthen that healthy self, you've got to mark out that path mm. and make those neural pathways because right now those eating disorder um, pathways are just so ingrained. And until you make new ones and transfer over to those, um, and that's a conscious choice. You know, it's a, it's, I talk about a lot it being consistent, conscious commitment every single day to challenging your eating disorder and to getting closer to the life that you want to lead and so ultimately strengthening your healthy self because it is mm. every second of every day it's not just occasionally you can kind of go oh well I'll kind of put in a bit of an effort today it's got to be that conscious consistent commitment yeah, recovery doesn't take a day off. I often have to remind people when they say, oh, but Mia, I've got this really stressful thing coming up at school or work or I'm going on holiday. I'm like, recovery doesn't get a holiday. <laughs> you know, there's sort of the, the life to-do list, which is, you know, friends, family, work, school, whatever. Recovery isn't another number on that list. It encompasses the whole list. So if you can't apply recovery to that priority, then something's got to change with the priority. Recovery is not the thing that gets put on hold. If it can't apply, then we have to revisit it. Um, so with your definition of full recovery, if you were to explain to a client what life is like fully recovered, how would you explain that to them? <laughs> that's such a like million-dollar question, isn't it? Look, that's the, so the soundbite, Millie. <laughs> yeah, look, there are so many elements for me. Um, so first of all is acceptance of where my body naturally wants to sit. So for me, a big part of my recovery was allowing myself the time and the space um, for my body to find its happy place. And that was extremely scary um, because I wanted to know how I was going to look at the end of this process. And in order to recover, I had to be okay with not knowing. And so that is, you know, for me, that real acceptance of this is where my body likes to sit and, and being okay with that and not um, manipulating in any way um, and not punishing, you know, not punishing your body, really coming from a place of love um, for it and, and nurturing it, um, not only in terms of nourishing it with food, but also uh, resting um, and, and self-care. Um, I also think it's things being in perspective. So, of course, you know, I'm sure you're the same. There'll be, you know, particular times of the month or particular bad days where you'll be feeling particularly hormonal and you're not feeling so great about your body and you're not in love with it. And, but I think the key thing is that, you know, how we treat our bodies on those days is no different to how we would treat it on a day where we're feeling good about ourselves. We still nourish ourselves. We still be kind to our, we're still kind to ourselves. Um, and I think it's about having, you know, food, weight and body image, not dictating your life in any way that it is in, it is in perspective, you know, all of the important things in life are, are the priorities um, and your life is full of those things and full of love and laughter and, you know, passion and hobbies and, and things like that. And, you know, food and, and exercise take a really normal place in your life as they would in anybody else's who didn't have an eating disorder. Um, and I also think, you know, you being in the driver's seat, you know, the eating disorder is no longer in the driver's seat. You are 100% in the driver's seat. You are making decisions for you and you're making them according to your values, like your true core beliefs and values rather than the eating disorder's values. And I guess just that real sense of your body, mind and soul being in tune and you know, you being able to to listen to what's actually happening, whether that be listening to your heart and, and following, you know, what, what it's telling you to do or whether it be, you know, really listening to the fact that your body's really exhausted and you need to rest and have nourishing comfort food. Um, and I think also, I think the real test is when you have really stressful times in your life and that there's not even a, a flicker of a thought of resorting to disordered behavior to cope with those. Mm. I think that's a real test too of the fact that you're fully recovered when you are implementing 
um, strategies to deal with that stress that have absolutely nothing to do with food, exercise, weight, etc. Um, because I think you know that's that's key, and um, because that's the, that's the test. You know, if you can get through times in your life where you're highly stressed, or it happen that you're you know you, you you don't see coming, and it does that you don't waver in your commitment to to nourishing and and being kind to yourself. Um, and I think also for me, one of the things that I really learned in my in my recovery was how to harness the aspects of my personality that had really um, driven my eating disorder, say things like determination, um, you know, perfectionist, things like that, harness them in a really good way, in a way that actually benefits my life, mm -hmm. um, that helps my career, that um, enables me to, to achieve my goals and things like that, um, rather than it being in an eating disordered way. Mm -hmm. so that really long answer to that question but, but there are very comprehensive <laughs> in yes. the sense that it is really multifaceted and it's not perfect a big part of what i have to do to manage clients expectations is that this is going to be the biggest test of your perfectionistic self because you're going to suck at this process and full recovery is not going to be perfect either that just like at the average joe you're going to have a bad body image day every now and then and it's more a test of how you take care of yourself through that, as you say, you know, not resorting to and having that immediate uh, outlet or urge to uh, fix it or or soothe or comfort yourself with eating disorder behaviours. Uh, that's really, as you say, when I have gone through the biggest stresses, they've almost been like markers of where I am in terms of how I measure my recovery and for recovery and having just gone through something quite quite stressful there was sort of the silver lining of oh wow I just passed a big full recovery test in that didn't even occur to me to revert back to sort of that old record playing in my head that you know is a vulnerability of mine that doesn't mean that I play into it it doesn't mean it shows up in my daily life but I can acknowledge it is a vulnerability but one that doesn't have to be omnipresent um so with the sense of purpose that you've taken from the energy and time that you've put into advocacy and now building your own coaching business. I think purpose, as we learn, you know, via Carolyn is such a key part of the recovery process and getting to a place of full recovery. And obviously we talk about eating disorders a lot and a lot of our energy goes into being in touch with people who have eating disorders. How do you think that has impacted your recovery, having sort of that, still that link to eating disorders as a topic and talking to people who are currently still struggling? Do you think that it's strengthened your own recovery or have there been any moments where it's been difficult to kind of be still plugged into that space? Look, for me, it's just strengthened it. Um, there has never been a moment where it has um, made me think twice about, I don't know that I can do this. I don't know that I can be this close to the coal face. Um, I find that it reminds me, um, how far I've come. It reminds me why I would never, ever want to go back there. Mm -hmm. Not only from my perspective, but also working with parents and carers and you see the absolute devastation that the eating disorder is causing families and that then constantly makes me reflect on, on the devastation that it caused my family and the fact that I would never, ever want to put them through that again. And so I think when you're faced with a constant uh, daily, multiple times a day reminder, uh, it is, it's something that just makes me even more determined to show people that you can get well and that you can come out the other side. And yeah, as I say, there hasn't been a moment for me where it has shaken me. Uh, I do think that that would be different for, for everybody in terms of whether becoming a recovery coach after getting well would be the right right thing to do i think it's something that you really have to to think long and hard about in terms of whether you can and i don't want to say endure because it's not it's not enduring but you do have to 
you do have to be strong. It is mm -hmm. relentless. Just like your battle with an eating disorder was relentless. Dealing with people with eating disorders day in and day out is relentless. It is. And, but it is also incredibly, incredibly rewarding. Mm -hmm. And that is what keeps me doing it day in and day out because you can see the difference that you're making to people's lives and, and therefore their families' lives as well. Yeah. I think I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been questioned a lot by people, particularly with my YouTube channel and the fact that the majority of it is dedicated still to the more the broad topic of eating disorders, not so much my eating disorder anymore. And people say, well, you know, how is it that you can recover or fully recover when you're still immersed in eating disorder topics or, you know, speaking to people with eating disorders. And I just don't think that there's necessarily this obvious link between, you know, talk, it, it's almost like there's a lack of trust or belief that you can, you know, remain connected to people with eating disorders or the topic of eating disorders and be fully recovered. I don't know. I just, there's always this bit of suspicion around, you know, are you really, are you really though? <laughs> Oh, I have had that so much. And I bet. it's almost like, especially in those first sort of two years, say, and then when you get to year four and it's still happening, you just want to shake people and yeah. go, look, if I was going to have relapsed, I would have relapsed by now. Okay? That's right. You'd probably um, know. It's, I'm a bit public with it. You'd probably know by now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just, yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's, but I also think, like when people people actually stood back and thought about it, like our entire culture it, that we exist in as a society is so saturated with highly triggering, um, you know, focuses on on these crazy diets and and extreme exercise and this sort of fat phobia, so to speak. And, or, and I think a lot of that stems from the fact that we're in this obesogenic culture where the yes. focus on obesity is so massive. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, okay, you could, you could look at it and go, right, well, yes, we're immersed in eating disorders, but just even just existing in the world, you're sort of immersed in that type of culture anyway. Um, but it is, it's interesting. People's people are always going to have interesting perspectives and perceptions. And I've just learned to smile and nod, yep. and, you know, stand tall in your conviction. Um, and you know, you know, in your heart, and this is the thing, I think that's one of the beautiful things about recovery too, is that you become so connected to your soul self mm. and being able to know what, what you want to be doing and whether it's the right thing for you and just following that absolutely vehemently, even if other people sort of look at you sideways and go, really, you're doing mm -hmm. that? Uh, you know, you know what you meant to be doing with this, this wonderful life that you've got, especially when you've been through something that has you know, literally brought you to the brink of death. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And on that note, probably the final thing I would ask you, given, you know, Millie today, recovered Millie is so connected to that true self. What would you say to Millie, who's at the very start of this journey, who has no idea what the next four years are going to be filled with? What would you want her to know day one of recovery? What you want her to, you know, uh, truly go into this experience knowing or believing? I want her to know that it's going to be tough. There's going to be many, many tears and many, many moments when she wants to turn back. But I want her to know that it's worth it to push through and that she can absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, do this and that she will get out the other side of this and look back on this journey and be so, so thankful that she garnered every inch of strength that she had to push through and get out the other side to the life of freedom that she so deserves. And I want her to know that when the eating disorder says to her that she doesn't deserve this life of freedom, that she so, so does. And that the victory will be even sweeter because she has stood up to that evil bully of an eating disorder 
and gained that life and realized for herself that she does deserve it and that the battle was more than worth it. Fantastic. Beautiful. Well, Millie, your, co- your clients are so lucky to have you. I think you are so fabulous and inspiring and kind, and I'm so grateful for you and all the amazing work that you're doing. Every time I see an update about Ended Butterfly House, I cannot contain my excitement for what that is going to look like and what that is going to mean to so many people. It is so long overdue, but absolutely to the credit of yourself and obviously Mark and Gay and all the tireless effort on your behalf. Just thank you from me as someone who can say to people, something is happening. Some, I promise you something is happening. <laughs> and this is the thing, you know, actually seeing something happening. I was out at the property um, a couple of days ago and there are now being, you know, stakes being out on the ground for it all being surveyed out. And you're actually standing there and looking and going, this is happening. It's, it's real. Happening. It's real. Yeah. And it is just the beginning of much needed change in the entire eating disorder landscape in Australia. Mm-hmm. So so fabulous. I can't wait to come and visit partially because I'm so cold and I can't wait to be back in Australia and up on the sunny coast and yeah, just checking out that fabulous property. So, so exciting. So Millie, where can people come and find you? Where are you sort of out on the internet world? Absolutely. So we have a website, um, www.ended, so E-N-D-E-D, Australia.org.au. I also run the Ended Instagram. So at Ended Australia, and I update that daily with recovery inspiration. And you could also email me if you'd like to contact me directly at Millie, M-I-L-L-I-E at E-N-D-E-D dot org dot A-U. Fabulous. I will make all of those links and handles available wherever this is posted all over uh, where the podcast will be available, but over on my Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter as well. So make sure you guys go and check out the amazing work that Millie is doing. So Millie, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so appreciative. I hope that you'll come back. I'm sure we have so much more to talk about, but I so appreciate your time this evening. Well, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure and I cannot wait to come back and talk more about all things eating disorders. Brilliant. Hopefully on a closer time zone. (laughs) Absolutely. Let's try for that. Let's do that. Thanks, Millie. I'll talk to you soon. See you. Bye.